Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, there will be some teachers in the back. You are excused. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible. We are going to begin a new series for the next about five months in the Gospel of John. So if you will, turn with me to the Gospel of John. And if no one has said Happy Mother's Day, let me be the first to tell you Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Sort of towards the end of the fourth century, there was a mother, and this mother played a profound role in history. So this mother's son went off to Milan, which was sort of the cultural and intellectual centers of the the world at that point, and he went off to seek fame and fortune. And and in some ways he did, at least in part. He, He became one day one of the greatest speakers or orders of his day. But you see, his mother was worried, very, very worried. As her son went off, she was worried because more than fame, more than fortune, More than getting a good job, this mother had a singular desire for her son. This mother wanted her son to be a Christian. And so she would pray and she would pray and she would pray to that end. And like all mothers, she wasn't really subtle about her desires for her son. And so eventually, this son thought he could get his mom off his back if he kind of had the, the sort of appearance of religion in his life. And so he started kind of going to church. He joined a catechism class, thinking that'll kind of ward off his mother. But mothers can read their son's minds often, can't they? And she knew. She knew it was sort of all a facade, and so she just kept praying and praying and praying. That was the sort of characteristic of her life. Eventually, actually, this, this, this mother, her own pastor and minister, came to her house, visited her, and saw her kind of on her knees praying and weeping for her son. And this minister was so moved, he was said to have said this. He said, I don't think it's possible as you pray with that much energy and fervor that God will not hear your prayers. God will save your son. And with that sort of encouragement, she just continued to pray and pray and pray that God would reveal himself to her son. That her son would begin to walk with God, know God, experience God, and be saved by God. Well, this morning... We're going to start a new series in the Gospel of John. Now, just by way of preface, John, who wrote the Gospel, was one of the early disciples of Jesus. And so he writes the first 18 verses as a sort of prologue. You you can think of the first 18 verses, that's what we're going to look at today, as a a sort of cliff notes of the entire book of John. So so all these themes that he's going to develop, themes like light and darkness— and themes like the world, and the word, and the message, and, and Jesus, all of these sorts of themes, he, he like crams in 18 verses, and then he's going to develop them as we go throughout this entire book. But at the end of the book, John gives his 
thesis, like why he wrote this book. He, he tells us, remember, remember those five paragraph essays your, your teacher made you write and you had to put in the last sentence of the first paragraph, you had to t- put your thesis statement? Well, John doesn't do it in the first paragraph. He does it at the end of a, his book. He, he says why he wrote it. He had a singular purpose, just like a singular purpose of a mother in the fourth century. John wrote this gospel that we're going to look at in the next five months in order that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and having believed that Jesus is the Christ, that we will have life. So, this morning, how can you know God? Or if you met God, how would you know if you've met God? That's what we're going to look at this morning. That's the question we're going to ask, and John is going to answer it. And John is not subtle about the answer to how we can know God, how we can experience God. He isn't subtle with what God looks like. Every Sunday, I try to sort of sum up the text in a big idea. The big idea is behind me, which is basically God discloses himself in the person of Jesus to give us life. That's what we're going to look at this morning. So turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 18 verses. I'm going to read it all. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He was who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So John begins, go back up to verse 1, he begins his gospel different than the other gospel writers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's different. So Luke begins his gospel account in the incarnation. Mark starts his basically when Jesus started ministry. And then Matthew starts it in a genealogy, rooting kind of the, the, the story way back into Abraham. But not John. 
So, so John doesn't start with, you know, the inception of Jesus or the ancestry of Jesus or the ministry of Jesus. He starts back at the dawn of time, doesn't he? In the beginning. Aaron read those words earlier. The first words in your Bible, in the beginning. And you might think, in the beginning, and you might be going, okay, in the beginning, God only In John 1, it's in the beginning, word. In the beginning was the word. Now, what what is this sort of term, word? Where does it come from? Well, actually, it's a pretty common word when this was written. Like Greek philosophy was uh, talked about this word. Many people, many kind of Greek philosophers use this word to describe God's creation power. that, That God creates through his word, through his breath, through his message. So it was common in those days. But, but really, when you think about it, this isn't just like a Greek word that was used kind of culturally in John's day, the writer. This is a Bible word, right? God's word is power. This is, this is an Old Testament word. This word goes all the way back to creation, doesn't it? Where God created the universe by his word. And then you could just sort of do a, a biblical theology of the, of, the, of the word, and then you realize, actually, God's word is Powerful, right? God's word in Ezekiel brings life to the dead. Or Moses even talks about the law, the law that God gives and says the law, God's, God's commandments bring life. Or one of my favorite places where it talks about God's word and the power of God's word in sort of poetic uh, form is Psalm 148. We read there that God's word melts ice and snow and makes the wind blow and the waters flow. Isn't that good? Wish I wrote that. That's good. That's the power of God's word. So it wasn't like Greek philosophy that, that invented this. No, this goes way back into your Old Testament. And so John takes this idea, this idea of the word, and says, okay, in the beginning, not only was God, in the beginning was the word. And then what he's going to do in so quick, like with very few words, he's going to just smash all of these extremely important theological truths and he's going to smash them together in like 10 Greek words. So, so look at it. It says, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. So, so there we have the pre-existence of this word. He existed before time. We, we, we learned then next that the word was with God. So, so there was this Intimate connection between word and God. And if you're scratching your head, just keep going. And then it says, and the word was God. So the word is preexistent. The word has this intimate connection with God. And then thirdly, the word is God. And then we keep reading and it says, all things that were made were made through this word. So creation itself is wielded by the word. And then we just kind of keep going. Not only do we know that there's this unity between word and God, but then there's this distinction. There's oneness, yet persons. And then he kind of keeps going. Not only is the word preexistent, not only is the word with God, not only is the word God, not only did this word create, but then fifth, we have this idea of light and life. That this word, whatever it is, This word is going to bring life. 
And the idea there in verse 4 isn't that the, that, that the word produces life or brings life, although those are true. The word is life. That's the idea in verse 4. That this word, whoever he is, and we're going to find out who he is. I'm trying to, you know, you know, be murder she wrote for a second, all right? Whoever this word is, is literally at the core of his being life. And then we get this whole idea of light. The, the word is light, or the word brings light, or the idea is that this, this word is going to bring illumination. Stephen Hawking, as many of you know, one of the, the great physicists of our day, he was famously said that he wanted to find a theory that would explain everything. A simple, kind of all-encompassing theory that would explain the universe, explain everything that there is. And as far as I know, he spent his entire life, up to his death, searching for it. And what John is saying in verse 4 and 5 is that Stephen Hawking wasn't wrong to pursue it. He was just looking at all the wrong places. That the word actually brings this sort of illumination have you ever watched those like YouTube um, videos of a, of a child who's colorblind and for the first time he puts on glasses in which he can see color? I mean, you, you get emotional just watching it because the, the child just starts weeping and crying because their world is just forever changed, right? They, they saw the world in grayscale and all of a sudden now they see colors and lights and their world is forever changed. That's the idea here. This word, when he comes into the, to the light, when you experience this word, it's like going from grayscale to, to colors. You see the world differently. Everything changes because of this word. So here in the, these five verses, we have just like this smashing, this tightly wound theological ball of, of truths. But, but we're still wondering like, okay, <laughs> the, the, the word is preexistent. The word was with God. The word is God. He created things. He brings life, or he is life, and he brings light. But, like, tell me more. Like, who is this word? And I think John is kind of uh, guessing at your question, thinking, okay, and you're looking around going, in the first century, like, well, who would this word be? Who would bring this message? And they're like, well, the greatest prophet of our day. This word's got to be John the Baptist, right? I mean, John the Baptist in the first century was the celebrity sort of pastor. He was controversial, but he was definitely the celebrity pastor. And so, oh, maybe John the Baptist is the word. But our author makes it clear in verse 6, 7, 8, that John the Baptist is not the light. John was a prophet. Later on, we'll learn that he was one of the greatest prophets to ever live. He had a commission from God, like all prophets, to speak God's word, but it was not that he is the light. He is not the word. He had a different purpose. He, he, he was like a man on a ship whose goal it is to just look out on the horizon to make sure that he can see the lighthouse, and when he sees a light, he's supposed to point to it and say, I see the light. That's John the Baptist. He was a witness. He was to testify to what he has seen. He was supposed to get ready and say, that's the word. That's the light. He has come. 
So it's clear, at least in part, that we have this word, but we're still sort of scratching our head wondering, now, who is this word exactly? And if you're sort of confused, if you're reading John for the first time, you might go, okay, well, this is wonderful that there's all these theological truths, but I need some more concreteness to who this word is. Verse 14, skip down there. I mean, if this isn't astonishing enough, you get to verse 14 and you're like, oh my goodness. This is even more mysterious. It's more unbelievable. We read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So this word, who we learned in verse 1, is God, becomes a man. So God didn't subtract his divinity. He, t- he takes his divinity and adds to it humanity. And this word, he comes and he dwells among us. The, the, the literal idea is that he tabernacled amongst us. Now, I, I said earlier that there's two major allusions in our text to the Old Testament. The, the first I mentioned was Genesis Chapter 1, but the second really is the book of Exodus. If you remember the book of Exodus, you have God rescuing Israel from Egypt, and he rescues and brings them out into freedom, and he assembles them after going through the wilderness, he assembles them on Mount Sinai. He constitutes them as a people. He, he sort of, when he gives him the law, it's like, you are my people and here's your new constitution. This is how we're going to have this relationship. So he, God graciously and lovingly gives his people his word. And then when Moses is up, as God's speaking to him, well, the people are bored, right? And they'd forgotten their Xboxes back in Egypt. And so they're bored. And so they, like, what's, what's taking so long uh, uh, up on the mountain? And so they begin to, fall into idolatry and to sin. And they build this golden calf and they begin to worship it. And God looks down and says, that's it. I'm done with these people. I'm going to wipe them off like in the days of Noah. And I'll start anew with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes for the people and God relents. Moses then goes down on the mountain and he he sort of uh, um, erects a tent of meeting where God and him can meet. And he's meeting with God. But then Moses speaks to God, and it's really, really interesting because God, Moses goes, okay, God, I want to know you. That's his purpose. That, that's what he wants. That's, he wants to know God, and God says, you can know me. I promise you. It's not just you who are going to go to the promised land. I'll come with the people. But that's not enough for Moses. Moses goes, no, 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 no. I want to see your glory. And at this point, as you're reading, you might go, Moses is getting greedy here, right? I mean, God just forgave the people. God's in the tent of meeting. I mean, things are kind of good. He rescued them from Egypt. He even said, I'm going to be with you. And Moses is now saying, I want to see your glory. I don't think Moses is being greedy at all. When Moses says, I want to know your glory, he's saying, I want to know your name. I want to know who you are. I want a description of you. I want to see you and who you are. And shockingly, God says, 
okay, you can see my glory, but only a part of it. And so Moses goes up on the hill and, and God hides him in a cleft of a rock and he passes by Moses and Moses sees the backside of God's glory. And as God is passing by Moses, he displays and declares who he is in that famous Exodus 34 way. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, a God who is gracious. Merciful and gracious. That's how God revealed himself. It's how he revealed his glory to Moses. And those two ideas, and it goes on, but those are kind of the, the, the two main sort of description. God is gracious and merciful. And it's interesting that when we flip back to John, when he talks about the incarnation of this word, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and Truth, grace and truth, the two words back in Exodus 34. Divinity was shrouded with power. Moses could only see a a hint of that glory, otherwise he would die. But now divinity has tabernacled. God's presence is now with people. Divinity has been incarnated in human flesh. And his name, and here's where you guessed it, we finally figure out the name of the word down in verse 17. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then you keep reading, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is from the Father's side. He has made himself known, meaning that no one has ever seen God. Maybe just a piece of God. This is why Moses had to hide himself in the rock. No one had ever seen God because if you saw God in your sin, you would die. But now, if you want to experience God, if you want to know God, if you want to meet God, if you want to know what he is like, John tells us, you just got to look at Jesus. God has made himself known in Jesus Christ. That's the point of verse 16 and 17. Right? Moses brought the law, which, which was good. It was gracious. The law was merciful. The, the law was perfect. The law was good. And yet, though that grace came, when Jesus came on the scene, when the word came, it was grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It was a, a manifold, a building up of grace. You see, Moses built the tabernacle. Jesus is going to do something far better. You see, Jesus brought, or Moses built the tabernacle where God could dwell, but, but it was, you know, there was all these sorts of things you had to do in order to actually be in God's presence. Actually, very few people could actually literally be in God's presence. But now, Jesus has tabernacled among his people. That's a far greater grace, isn't it? Grace is being multiplied in the person of Christ. Moses could only see the back of God, but you could see the face of God in Jesus Christ. You see, all the exodus, all the tabernacle, all those sorts of things, they were shadows. They were were mere types of the ultimate fulfillment that was coming 
into the world in the person and work of Jesus Christ when he took up flesh, God taking up flesh and resided with humanity. The the author of Hebrews puts it this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, men like Moses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the Son, that is the Word, and he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, isn't it all there? I mean, John 1 is pretty much all there in the first few verses of Hebrew. Moses, back in Exodus, heard about this gracious God, Moses experienced God's graciousness time and time again. Moses saw God's glory, but only a part of God's glory. But as John is going to tell us, we're not just going to see God's grace and mercy partially. We're going to see it on its fullest display in the person of Jesus Christ when he dies on a cross for sinners. Oh yes, Moses saw a gracious and merciful God. But when Jesus came into the world, that grace was displayed in such a way that Moses ain't seen nothing yet. And that's the point of the prologue in many ways. To tell us not simply of who God is and how to meet God, but to say, if you want to know God, if you want to meet God, you will meet him in no other person than Jesus Christ. Now, I think our world sort of says, you Christians are kind of arrogant, right? You suggest that you can know God and you say, this is what God is like. And that seems pretty arrogant, right? Because once you say that God is like X, you exclude a description of God being Y. So what gives you the right Christians to suggest that God is like this, that you can know God in Christ? Well, I think it's a good question. It's a good question in many ways because it would be arrogant. It would be arrogant unless God himself decided to reveal himself. It's not arrogant for my wife to say that Stephen likes this and not like that after being married to me in 15, for 15 years. That's just who I am. And so it's not arrogant to say that this is who God is because God has revealed himself. We're just like the spouse who says, Stephen hates mayonnaise, and it's just a fact. If you like mayonnaise, I still don't understand it. <laughs> this is the point of the prologue. This is who God is. But, but, but I say all that, and there's a problem. There is a problem in our text, and I skipped it because I wanted to leave it for last. Go up to verse 9. You see, verse 9 says, The light came into the world. The light again is talking about the word, that is Jesus. He came into the world. He even made the world. But the problem is, The world, even his own, did not receive him. One of the most frequent words in the Gospel of John is the idea of world. 
In the world, that, that word can mean many things. You kind of need to look at the context. But, but generally, and it does here, what that it means is the idea of world, he came into the world, it stands for all humanity in the rebellion against God. And it's that world, a world of men and women in rebellion against God, that glory, that light, that the word that Jesus came into the world and the world rejected See, the Bible, metaphorically, doesn't say that we are like partially blind or a little blind or even a lot blind. It says that we are fully blind. We are spiritually colorblind to the reality of who God is. And I think that's really the tragedy and and the problem of our text, right? Creation does not know its creator. The very people God created don't know him. They didn't receive him. And so I think it sort of begs the question, like, did God fail? Or did God partially fail? Since so many rejected him, is that like a failure of God? Well, I think we just have to keep reading. Look at verse 11 and 12. Though it's grim and though some don't receive this son... Verse 12 says that some do. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the idea is that those who receive Jesus Christ, who believe in his name, become children of God. And you might know, like, to, 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 to believe in someone's name is to believe in who they are, that they're, they're essential character and nature. And so if you receive Christ in who he is, that Jesus really is who he says he is, that he really is the Son of God, that all these theological truths that John lays out, if you believe that he is that, then you become a child of God, meaning you become part of his covenant community. You're a part of his family. You're his child. But that's sort of the first metaphor. Then if you just keep going in verse 13, there's sort of another metaphor. It's being born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What's that idea? It's saying that this is God's work. This is language of the new birth, which we're going to get into in more detail in John chapter 3. But the idea is, and it's kind of taken out of biology, is that a child cannot just, just snap their finger and become alive. They actually need a a man and a woman to actually give them life in order to exist. And that's the idea here. In the same way that a child needs a man and a woman to pass on life for them to exist, so God must pass on life in order for you to receive this son. But I still think there's a problem. And the problem is that some receive and some don't receive. That, that's clear. There's a contrast here. Some receive the light and some don't receive the light. And so it looks like there's like a partial, like God partially wins, but the darkness partially wins as well. That the light enlightens some, but the darkness wins against others. But I don't think that's at all what's going on here. 
Um, do, do you remember a few months ago, th- there was that fake, I call it fake spring. It was gorgeous. It was like 60, and then we had like two more months of rain. But, you know, the Northwest just like manipulated our emotions, getting us excited for summer that, and spring that, you know, we're, we're not going to experience for a while. Uh, well, I remember my, my, two of my children were running outside because they saw the, the sun. And so the first child ran out and seeing the sun and the brightness and the warmth and was like excited to go play outside and just enjoy the sun. And then another child walked out and saw the brightness, and I think he might have been vitamin D deficient or something. Maybe he's part vampire or something. And he walked out and he goes, ah, and he ran back inside. The, the, the brightness was just too much for him, right? He spent too many months hibernating in darkness. This is how light works, right? Light sometimes divides. And that's how John talks about light, metaphorically and thematically. That that, that light actually divides people. That the light doesn't just, doesn't just bring illumination to who God is, but then light comes to some and exposes darkness within. So the light always wins. Sometimes the light comes and manifests in faith, and sometimes the light comes and manifests and exposes darkness. This is how John's going to pick it up. I'll, I'll just point it out, but we'll get into it in a few more weeks. John chapter 3, if you, if you know, you know, the famous John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You know, that wonderful, glorious, the light coming and people receive that whoever received this son will have everlasting life. But then you just got to keep reading to verse 19. And it says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Picking up on this thematically again, this idea of light. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light. So the light shines, the light has come into the world, and it exposes some people who receive God, and others, it exposes their love of darkness, and they reject the light. And so that's sort of how the prologue ends. It sort of ends with a cliffhanger. Right? The other Gospels are a little bit more sort of detail-oriented. You know, Luke gives this, like, really historical view of the life of Jesus, but John's a little more in your face. John's like, this is who Jesus is. He is the Word. He is with God. He is preexistent. He is God himself. He, he, He is life. He brings light. He is the creator. He is incarnated himself. What are you going to do about it now? That's sort of the, the gospel of John in its large sense. He just lays out who Jesus is and now says, okay, now what are you going to do about it in light of who Jesus is? So that's sort of the end of my question for you at the end of this sermon. In light of who Jesus is, in light of John's testimony of who Jesus is, what are you going to do about it? And as you think about that question and contemplate that question, let me tell you about a woman and her son, and what he did about that question. So this man, this son, whose mother prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him, he eventually became so racked with anxiety and fear and guilt, but he didn't know what to do with it. This son was named Augustine. Now you know who this is. 
And one day in his pain, in his anxiety, in his fear, like, I don't know what's going to happen to me after I die. I, I have this success. I have this mind. I have some level of fame and fortune. And yet I'm just not happy. He cried out one day when he was with some friends, uh, sort of a, the cry of the psalmist. How long, O Lord? And as he's weeping and as he's praying, suddenly he heard a boy or a girl. He didn't know what it was. He heard some voice from a neighbor's house chanting over and over again, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up and read it and read it, pick it up and read it. He just couldn't get this idea out of his head. He just kept hearing this child screaming at him to pick it up and read it. And he knew what it was. He, he, he knew what it was saying. He ran to the closest Bible. He opened it up and he read it. And this is in his book, The Confessions. This is how he describes his conversion right after he picked up God's word and read God's word. He said, there was infused in my heart something like the light of full certainty and all the gloom of doubt vanished away. Tragically, a year later, Monica, Augustine's mother, died. But for one year, she got to see her son alive in Christ. Full of light, full of life. Her prayers answered. So let me just encourage us again. Mothers and fathers, aunts, uncles, grandparents, siblings, all of us. What an opportunity. What an opportunity for all of us. In light of John's testimony, you can see and know and experience God. That is the blessing and that is the confidence we can have because of Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, know Jesus and you can know God. And then secondarily, what an encouragement it is Two, like John the Baptist, there's only one John the Baptist, but all of us can be a witness. All of us can point to Jesus. We could say, no, it's not me. I'm not Jesus. Far from Jesus. But I know of one who is more gracious and patient and kind and loving, and I'll tell you about him. I love Mother's Day because it reminds me that my mother was like Monica, a praying mom. So keep praying praying for your children, your neighbors. Keep praying and praying because the light has come into the world and some are going to receive it. Let's pray. God, I just uh, thank you. I thank you for that in Christ Jesus, the light has come into the world. And so, Lord, we, we pray that we would know you even in a deeper way, that we know your grace, that we know your love, that we know your forgiveness, that we know your salvation, that we'd know your comfort and peace in a deeper way this season. Lord, we, we, we thank you that we can gather, we can sing, we can pray, we can do all these sorts of things. And we can do all these sorts of things because we want to experience your beauty and majesty and glory. So as we sing this final song, Lord, we pray that we would be just amazed and astonished by your grace and how much you loved wretches like us. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.